We are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. Uh, this is the third webinar of our October 2015 series titled Doing Innovation, Empowering Young People for Tomorrow's World. If you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Uh, I'm Craig Watkins, um, University of Texas professor, uh, and I'll be uh, moderating uh, today's conversation um, and looking forward to it. I've also recently uh, launched a new project called Doing Innovation, and so excited to uh, have uh, a guest here today sort of elaborate on some of the key themes uh, that are sort of central to that project. Uh, throughout this series on Connected Learning TV, we'll explore the landscape of the new economy. Uh, and more specifically consider what kinds of skills and resources, what kinds of organizations and institutions do young people need as they seek to build more robust pathways to opportunity. Uh, so today we're talking with a very esteemed uh, group of scholars, researchers, thought leaders, uh, and uh, again this promises to be a very stimulating conversation. In a moment I'll have each of them uh, briefly introduce themselves. Before we dive into our chat, let's go over uh, just a few uh, quick details. Uh, to those who are watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions uh, through either the Twitter hashtag Connected Learning or the Q question and answer feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout as they come in. So if something comes up for you or you'd like for us to explain something, address something, certainly please feel free to share. Uh, your questions and comments with us. This webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Projects EducatorInnovator.org. Uh, so before we start, I'd like to give everyone a chance here to introduce themselves and um, maybe we can work our way uh, across the screen, maybe starting with you, Ben. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. My name is Ben Kirshner, and I'm an associate professor in learning sciences and human development at the University of Colorado, Boulder. I'm also a faculty director for a center here called CU Engage, which tries to uh, leverage the university resources and capacities to partner with communities around uh, relevant research and also addressing public challenges. Uh, and I'm excited to be part of the conversation. I'm part of this connected learning network as a network advisor. and have been working on a project with a team of graduate students um, and my colleague Bill Penuel really looking at questions of the last mile as it relates to young people's participation in new media arts programs. So I'll say more about that in a little bit. Julian? Hi, uh, my name is Julian Sefton Green and I work at the London School of Economics. Um, in my life, I have also worked uh, with young people in an out-of-school youth community centre here in London. Um, and uh, the focus there has been very much on uh, offering opportunities for young people to take advantage of forms of creative uh, learning and essentially arts and cultural-based activities. And the research that I'm undergoing at the moment as part of the Connected uh, Learning uh, Network uh, is uh, furthers that, that interest um, as I've been working with a range of young uh, filmmakers, particularly uh, from uh, black and ethnic minority backgrounds and those who've had rather non-traditional roots into um, filmmaking. Um, and that's uh, what I'm looking forward to sharing with you today. Julie? I think you're on mute. Juliet Shore, I'm a professor of sociology at Boston College. I'm a member of the Connected Learning Research Network. Um, I'm also an economist. I've studied uh, uh, labor market issues and I um, connect to the last mile conversation um, through the work I've been doing in the network, studying makerspaces, open education platforms, and so-called uh, sharing economy platforms, particularly those that are focusing on labor. Um, so that's my uh, current interests. Hi. Yeah, I'm uh, Sonia Livingstone. I'm a professor at the London School of Economics in a department of media and communications, and I'm also part of the uh, Connected Learning Research Network. 
Uh, I'm currently uh, working on a project called um, Parenting for a Digital Future and um, with my colleagues at LSE we've been working uh, with right now about 65 families in London and uh, the so London families are fantastically diverse in terms of ethnicity, income, um, how they live, what their kind of sense of possibilities are and so I'm going to be drawing on insights around how families and especially how parents are trying to bring up their children in the here and now knowing that the future for them is uncertain and I'm kind of interested in how they think about those those um, future pathways and especially the parents who uh, think that digital media and digital technological skills can provide them with a special kind of route into uh, a successful uh, future for their children. Great and um, so let's just let's, let's get started here. Um, I mean, as you each know, within the network, we've had uh, any number of conversations uh, around um, you know, rethinking learning, uh, you know, education, uh, you know, pathways to opportunity, uh, issues of equity, uh, and so these are the, the the kinds of themes that have been reoccurring over the over the course of the life of the network. Um, and one of the things that we've you know been thinking about um, in in greater detail over the last couple of years or so, uh, at least. Um, it's really sort of thinking about the, the world that young people are transitioning into uh, and how that world uh, is obviously marked by uh, a variety of sort of profound shifts in terms of technology, in terms of education, in terms of occupational structures, kind of global kind of issues, economic issues. Um, and so I think, you know, what we're interested in doing here is, is maybe sharing with uh, the audiences and those who may come in and look at this later, um, you know, how are we thinking about some of these questions, um, how they might be articulated in terms of a research agenda, in terms of kind of policy-oriented conversations uh, that address uh, some of these challenges that are sort of emerging and becoming salient across the world. Now, we frame these as sort of the last mile, right? I'm sort of thinking about, you know, beyond the sort of informal and kind of formal learning ecologies that young people may inhabit or have access to, how do we really connect them to, to meaningful opportunity to real-world opportunity uh, and to opportunity to, to transform not only their lives but also their sense of agency uh, and the way in which they participate both in the civic sphere, the economic sphere, the social sphere. Uh, and so these are kind of burning questions for us. Um, so I wanted to ask each of you if you might give us uh, perhaps some, some insights or just a glimpse of how you define and interpret this last mile theme. Uh, in other words, um, what strikes you as most salient about this theme uh, and the ways in which we are sort of framing it as a network and the ways in which we've discussed it over the last few years, do you feel like this is a, is a productive way of, of sort of engaging a conversation, articulating a research agenda around issues of learning, around issues of equity, and around issues of opportunity, particularly as it relates to sort of resource-constrained youth. So again, the question is, how would you define and describe this last mile challenge that we've been trying to develop uh, within the network? Um, maybe we could start with um, Juliet. How about you? So I'll just say one small point about the terminology. People may want to talk about this more. Um, I think this is an incredibly important conversation. The term, uh, the word last sort of may put a finality onto it that that some may not like. I mean, especially when we're thinking about learning, we want to think about more lifelong processes. But I, I'm not too hung up on that. I mean, if, if we want to talk about that, we can. Why do I think this is so important? Um, I'm really a, a sort of both, I have a kind of schizophrenic point of view about this issue. On the one hand, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm definitely the pessimist in our group in sort of pointing out a lot of really adverse trends going on in labor markets for youth all around the world. So you have rising youth unemployment. Um, we've heard a lot about it in places like Europe um, and the United States. It's happening everywhere. So the, the labor market context that youth are going into is... I think getting more and more uh, difficult in terms of the imbalances of supply and demand. Now we can talk more about that. We wrote about it in the synthesis report we did early on in our network, um, and that's a that's a sort of structural trend in the global economy. Um, 
schizophrenic because I also see a much more optimistic sort of way to respond to these pessimistic trends and that is a future in which people become much more empowered through their skills digital and otherwise and through changing economic structures to um, to creatively um, construct livelihoods and I don't use the word jobs because jobs is really associated with a particular kind of economy you know bosses and workers and concentration of productive resources and so forth but I do see an opening here for creating a new kind of economy in which you have much more open access through digital economies to skills and ways of being productive um, and that we kind of sort of break the stranglehood of traditionally uh, oriented jobs and I could say a lot more about that but I'll stop now. No, I, I appreciate that, and I know even within the network and the and the team here in Austin, we've we've also pushed back a, a little bit against some of our own language and terms, particularly around the last mile. Uh, we've oftentimes thought about these issues as perhaps the next mile, suggesting um, that the that the kind of ongoing challenges that young people and really anyone will face in this sort of economy and future economy, uh, suggest right that these are issues um, that are not finite and, and certainly. Uh, you know, continue in ways that, that we can only uh, begin to, to, to understand. Um, Sonia, how about you? How, how, as you think about this, this sort of last mile thematic, what, 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 how would you describe it, define it? What strikes you as most salient? Um, about well, I, think, um, I think from a parenting point of view, the current joke, not so funny really, is that the last mile never comes. So a lot of parents talk about the sense that they will be responsible for their child forever and they are they're always hoping for that moment of independence and perhaps it will come. But even when they might think they've got their child to make that important transition, they are holding themselves in readiness for when it goes wrong or when it proves to be precarious or the child needs to come back and continue that parental role. So I think parents increasingly think of this really as themselves a lifelong task rather than a um, uh, a, a task that lasts 20 years and then you tick and it's done. I think what's interesting about the metaphor of the last mile is it implies a pathway and this is something we've also discussed in, in the network. It implies some kind of design of the uh, space of possibilities and when we talk about the last mile we talk about the ways in which schools um, address young people. We talk about the possible relation or the disconnect between schools and employers. We talk about the role of institutions and so on. So what our research is really showing is how much parents themselves feel left out of that whole kind of designing of the last mile um, infrastructure, if you like, and how much they um, feel that there are conversations going on between schools, young people, employers, um, and so forth that don't really connect with them. And um, I can kind of see also when listening to the way in which those organizations talk and even at the level of the public policy, the young person kind of arrives knocking on the door um, ready or not ready to engage in the next stage of their lives um, but there isn't much thought given to the fact that there is often a parent behind them supporting them, impeding them, giving them good or bad, good or bad advice. Um, you know, sociologists know and have said for years that parents are the key influence on the ways in which children grow up, what interests they develop, what resources they can call upon and yet at that kind of level of policy and institutional design the young person seems to come from nowhere without that parental support or indeed that kind of parental impediment. So I see for parents that this gap between the efforts they're putting in and the where it is that the young person's going, that gap produces a lot of anxiety. And so I think the way in which we're when we're talking to parents, we, we hear a lot of anxiety and a kind of um, disempowerment from parents. They don't know what steps to take. They want the young person to be independent, but they don't want to just close the door and say, 
you're on your own. Um, so how do they support? What should they be doing? When can they get involved? They don't want to be helicopter parents, but we haven't got another model, really, of a supportive parent. So those are the kinds of, um, I mean, I can say something, you know, now or later about what I see parents doing and their kind of strategies to respond to this anxiety, but in a sense, what my fieldwork shows is that the anxiety itself is really kind of very striking, not knowing where it is that they have a role in that transition for their young person. No, I think this is fantastic, and we'll certainly, uh, in the context of the conversation, Sonia, ask you to perhaps give us some further, further insights into what you're learning from parents. Yeah. Um, ben, I think you're, you were going to say something about this? Great. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation already and, and uh, hearing some new angles and insights um, on conversations we've been having. Uh, so just to remind um, our audience of the, this first question we're tackling is how we think about this metaphor of the last mile and whether or not it's a productive way to frame issues related to learning and uh, equity and opportunity. And <clears throat> I think I'll just flag a couple points here. Uh, one is I would like to echo um, this kind of dual message of pessimism and perhaps openings or possibilities that, that uh, Julie was uh, mentioning. And I, I think in general, I would really want to emphasize that as researchers and also as people working with young people, um, we'd want to maintain a critical stance or I'd want to maintain a critical stance towards some of these trends. So, uh, for example, we wouldn't want to celebrate the precarity of the workforce, for example, and the fact that um, entrepreneurialism is becoming more of a standard way of making a sustainable livelihood, while at the same time, in many ways, I think our case studies are trying to document and show some of the ingenuity that people are, in fact, demonstrating. Um, but I think in doing the work, we want to maintain a dual lens that is both um, critical of some of these trends that are destabilizing, kind of stable, um, that's a little bit repetitive, I guess, but they're destabilizing pathways towards jobs um, while also trying to understand how people are navigating this, this new situation. So, so that's one comment. Another is to just locate myself um, analogously to, to maybe what Sonia did. So my work has really focused on youth serving organizations or out of school time as distinct from parents or some of these trends in the economy that Julie was referring to. And in the youth development or, or youth service field, I think that the metaphor of the last mile, and I also like next mile, but I do think it's productive for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it is turning our attention towards kind of where are we going, where are we heading, and to the extent that it actually asks us to talk about that and, and try to talk about where we want to be heading, I think that's very productive, if, if not um, assuming there's one way um, that we're heading, but really to, to ask where is this work that we're doing with young people aiming to lead towards. I think in some ways in the United States, um, in particular, um, in the out-of-school time and youth development field, there's become, a, a, to some extent, an atrophied sense of, of where we're heading in the sense that kind of college has become the kind of only pathway that's recognized and not maybe stigmatized in the United States as, as the next step from, from an experience in the teen years. Um, and then within that, even more so, STEM uh, it has become a kind of the default pathway. And so I think talking about the last mile opens up conversations about alternative pathways, um, recognizing that in particular in the creative economy, um, in some cases college may be necessary, in other cases not. So I think it opened up the conversation. And then secondly, in particular for youth serving organizations, I think as a field, there's been really good research in the last 15, 20 years that has really attended to what, what program quality looks like that's internal to these organizations. And so that's an accomplishment. And I think there's also been really strong research about the value of participation in out-of-school time opportunities for young people, uh, particularly young people growing up in poverty. Um, and I think the next or the, the kind of third phase of this research really needs to look at the connections between experience people have within organizations and pathways to sustainable livelihoods. So I like that it's making us have that conversation and encouraging us to think beyond the kind of internal dynamics of a youth program and asking the ways in which it's, it's leveraging or supporting or brokering or structuring opportunities for youth to pursue sustainable livelihoods, whether that means going through college or whether that means other kinds of ways of demonstrating ingenuity in this 
I think, very challenging economic context. I'll stop there. Okay, you're on mute, Craig, but I'm guessing you're saying it's my turn to talk now. Uh, yeah. um, okay, so um, my take on this is uh, um, uh, absolutely to agree with what's been said before. I, I think what's interesting about the terrible phrase, the last mile, is it does help us think a little bit more about kind of the purposes of education and learning in a different kind of way, because it's obvious, and we all know that, education has a much broader philosophical, conceptual, civic, moral, individual, collective kind of purpose. And these are kind of deep points. But in recent years, particularly, we we, it's obvious that we live in an era where education is really measured for its contribution towards human capital, which in some ways is one of the most depressing and possibly one of the, the most impoverished views of education you could take, actually. So the good thing about the last mile from that point of view is it, it kind of um, begs the question because it says if the point of learning and education is to prepare people for the world of work and there is no work and there are no jobs, as Julie put it slightly more in a nuanced fashion, uh, then um, what, what does education do for them? I mean, how does it work? And really, educational research doesn't have the kind of longitudinal studies. It doesn't follow people over a life course. We don't really know how what and um, what you learn in school and in college, and how you learn in school and how you learn in college actually does make a difference to how you learn to get into work. And the point of the last mile work really is it kind of really throws the the emphasis on what difference does all of this make, and particularly given that the Connected Learning Research Network and the whole of the DML initiative is really concerned with the ways in which out-of-school, alternative, complementary, supplementary forms of education can really contribute to offering young people who perhaps come from marginalized and um, impoverished kind of backgrounds might have other routes to success. The last mile does really enable us to, to question whether that is indeed the case. So it's great, you know, if you do get inspired to follow forms of learning and forms of interest that are kind of interest driven and all the rest of it, absolutely fantastic. But does it enable you to kind of make a difference in terms of how you make a, a, a livelihood? Um, uh, or is it, um, or, or, or yeah, that's, that, that seems to me the real kind of benefit of the last mile perspective. And it, it looks at kind of learning and, educa and education in these curious spaces between school, between college, between college, between work. And it tries to put it together in a larger narrative. Thank you, um, Julian, and, and each of you. Uh, that was. Um, I mean, it's in, in some ways, I think, a really uh, interesting window into um, just how our own thinking as a network around these questions c continues to evolve and will absolutely, I think, and necessarily, uh, you know, continue to evolve. And so this is good um, just to kind of think out loud or to share out loud in this forum uh, our own thoughts about this. Now, I know each of this question around, uh, the, you know, the, the last mile, um, I wonder if, if, if each of you could maybe um, just um, share with us, um, you know, here uh, you know, succinctly, um, either work that you that you are currently involved in or, or research that you have been involved in that intersects with some of the more salient themes here, uh, with this with this notion around youth and and, and livelihoods and opportunity uh, and and sort of the future prospects for these kinds of things. Um, what your own research is telling you, um, you know, what, what's, what's happening in terms of various uh, kinds of communities, ecosystems, practices, institutions. Um, Julie, you, you've mentioned looking at uh, sort of the changing occupational structure and what labor looks like, for example, in the sharing economy. Uh, Sonia, you've made references to the kinds of anxieties that parents are beginning to develop in relation to some of these concerns around their children and future opportunity. Uh, and of course, Ben and Julian, you too have very particular kinds of investments in these questions as well. So maybe Julie, would you like to um, perhaps help us shift to uh, kind of hear a, a, a conversation around how uh, your respective research agendas and projects are sort of pointing towards some of these issues in very particular and nuanced kinds of ways? 
Sure. So we um, have been looking at things like maker spaces, um, uh, platforms that allow people to um, get money for their work, like um, TaskRabbit. We're also starting new research on Postmates, which is a, a platform delivery service. We've been looking at open learning and the ways in which people are using open learning um, in part to uh, help them in their labor market activities. And so the reason we, one of the reasons this really intersects with the last mile conversation is that these platforms and this new quote unquote sharing economy um, really has advertised itself as a space of opportunity and open access and kind of something that's you know disrupting the sort of entrenched businesses of the old economy that are hampered by various forms of discrimination and um, uh, sort of unfair kinds of access and of course this goes a this is a plausible idea because we know that many online com this the whole sort of structure of online many online communities is for open access at least formally anybody can you know go to a site for example and or be part of an online community um, that's the structure of many of them but so we're we're sort of looking to see well who's how are these places really operating in terms of sort of access and equality of opportunity and are they really places where young people who may have certain um, disadvantages or are subjected to kind of uh, discriminatory structures in the larger society is this a place where they can be free of those and actually really get a lot of opportunity. Um, I would say so far our findings are pretty pessimistic um, and there are sort of two big dimensions of those. One is that the platform economies seem to be sort of structured by race and socioeconomic status and education in the same way that the non-platform labor market is. So for example, some of the platforms, the places where you can get the best working conditions, the highest wages, are disproportionately populated by whites and by college educated folks and uh, by people who have had a lot of advantage prior to coming to the platform. And then if you look at the parts of the platform economy where the wages are less, that have uh, been used the term precarity, where the jobs are the most precarious or unsafe, uh, lowest wages, that's where you see people of color. That's where you see people without college educations and so forth. So that's, that's one so far not very um, good finding. I mean, there are some efforts within the platform economy, which is what I call it sometimes, to address some of these issues. But so far, it looks like it's operating a lot like the, the old economy. Um, the other thing I would say is that where we're looking at sort of the nonprofit spaces, things like food swaps and time banks, maker spaces, some of these really explicitly organized to address issues of access and opportunity and disadvantage, we see a lot of kind of status positioning and sort of cultural barriers um, to people who are not like the dominant group that sort of has in, uh, founded and sort of operates in these sites. We see that really strongly in our maker space especially but also in our food space. So the nonprofits, many of which have a strong rhetoric of openness and inclusion, are excluding people in much more subtle ways. It's not through the software <laughs> but it tends to be through the subtle social dynamics. No, that's fascinating, and it, it reminds me of you know what what seems to be a kind of recurring theme in internet-based uh, cultures, communities, and economies, digital cultures, communities, and economies, and that is this idea that on the one hand, 
there's presumption, right, that, that these kinds of disruptions democratize access, democratize participation, and yet what we end up seeing, you know, over the years is that uh, instead a very different narrative kind of emerging uh, in terms of how legacies of, of exclusion, discrimination, hierarchical relations continue to manifest themselves even in these presumably more open uh, and distributed kinds of networks and spaces. So. Um, this is sort of fascinating and, uh, and really interesting uh, to, to, to hear about. Um, ben, I know that your 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 work kind of on the on the on the front lines of this sort of last mile question have been engaged with young people um, in youth facing organizations um, that take place outside of kind of formal schooling and learning environments. And I'm wondering, kind of from your perspective, uh, and maybe even generalizing beyond. How do you think these issues percolate within uh, the kind of youth organization, youth development, youth serving community in terms of to what extent are organizations um, engaged with these kinds of issues? Do they uh, in some ways um, imagine part of their mission as, as preparing young people for this world of precarity? And even more so, you know, when young people come to these kinds of organizations that you've been involved with, um, what if in any ways, or how if in any ways, do these issues tend to manifest themselves and get expressed through their own visions, their own um, interests, uh, their own kinds of practices? Great. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> yeah, I've been speaking generally about youth organizations and out-of-school time, but one of the things that we're seeing in our research, which <clears throat> may not be surprising to people, is just that there's quite a bit of difference on this question depending on what field or what the kind of programmatic focus is of the particular program. So um, for example, we the, the work that I'll talk about um, at this in this conversation is from a participatory research study with four sites in different parts of the United States that varied in their emphases. So one was a, a kind of a STEM apprenticeship opportunity based in a museum. Another was much more focused on being a community space that used the arts and new media to kind of create a safe climate for young people who were in, which was in a neighborhood of concentrated poverty, but also to give access to real um, high quality professional level training in um, different kinds of new media arts like photography, videography, and music production. So those are, those are just two examples and then the others um, were some hybrids of, the, of those two, the other two of the four groups. And so one thing that we found productive as we were carrying out research kind of in a, in a way that was participatory with some of the youth at these sites was to really try to understand and map the kinds of fields that they were aspiring to get into. And, um, and so I'll, I'll just say a couple things that became salient for us. Um, as we were trying to think about these fields or these pathways, um, we found that it, it, it was useful to ask ourselves how visible versus opaque is a particular pathway into the future and um, all, and then another dimension is is sort of how gated is it versus how open is it and I'll just say what each of those means. So with regard to visible versus opaque, um, for example in the STEM kind of science mentoring program it was actually fairly clear kind of what one needed to do if want to pursue careers in science. It was a highly selective um, opportunity, apprenticeship and mentoring opportunity, uh, but it was clear that you needed to get some experience working in a lab. You know, you needed to then, certainly college would be a route um, towards further scientific opportunity. Um, the opaque example, and this is going to echo some of what we talked about, is this, um, are the opportunities in new media arts? And by opaque, um, I just mean it's not always obvious sort of what the step is that one needs to take to, to kind of find a sustainable livelihood in the arts. Um, and it might not involve formal education. It could involve formal education, but it might not. But I think one, one thing that could made that confusing for some of the youth, and this showed up in our interviews, is that there is very much a, a kind of college for all mantra, and I, I support that in general. Um, that is a, a discourse around going to college and getting access to college as sort of the right and almost in some cases the, the sort of only next step from high school. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily relate to creating a, a you know, thriving career as a music producer or as a filmmaker. So, um, so that's why I characterize it as more opaque and when, we, when young people interviewed each other or kind of talked to alumni about how you, how you kind of find people who, who, who can broker you through that career, 
it was it, the, the, the answers were sort of less clear, and we saw that as a reflection of the field. But I, I do want to say one more thing, then I'll, I'll kind of pick this up later in the conversation. There's a different dimension, which would be gated versus open for young people, and, and that's where these two fields kind of flip. So, you know, gated would mean the kinds of credentialing you need to get into them, the kinds of letters of reference you might need, the, the performance and GPA you might need to get in. So, for example, science and STEM pathways tend to be highly gated at, at every step of the way. Um, whereas I think the more promising and exciting opportunities in, in new media arts tend to be more open and open to entrepreneurship and, and certainly few, with fewer formal credentials. And we did see that in, in the arts-based site um, in Philadelphia where the, the, the organization itself, I think, also did see that. It was really trying to support youth in, in brokering access to networks, and it was really important to this organization, for example, to hire professional artists who came in as teachers to link youth who wanted to record music to actual recording studios. So there was a sense of trying to link young people to apprenticeship opportunities that were authentic in the field that they cared about. And there was a real celebration of young people who had then gone on and been able to forge those pathways and, and sort of in their, you know, in their early 20s they were um, in, in positions where they were getting paid for certain kinds of skills they had developed. Um, in the youth organization. So, so that openness created some possibilities and there, there, there was definitely, I thought, some really creative and high quality work going on in these youth settings to support access to filmmaking, photography, and, um, and, and music production in particular. Okay. Sonia, you had mentioned um, just things that, that you and your team and LOC are beginning to, um, to think about in terms of the conversations that you're having with parents and their children um, and how these um, issues sort of resonate within the context of families, um, parents' own investments, um, and, and, and how parents feel in relationship to these broader kind of structural changes that we've been referring to. Um, would you like to say more about that? I know you made some early references to it in your, in your opening remarks, but um, how do you think these issues around the last of the next mile are, how do they matter in, in, in the context of families and, and how parents are beginning to develop certain kinds of strategies um, as it relates to these issues? Well, I think, um, as I already said, I think parents really struggle to know how they could make strategies um, for their child outside the home. So when it comes to thinking about where they want their child, young person to develop outside the home, actually they are often quite, they, there's not very much they want to say uh, and they almost refuse um, the effort to try to imagine. So they say in the future, well, I just want my child to be happy. Um, isn't that what every parent wants? Or very often the end point of their imagination will be college. As long as I can get them to college, then it's down to them. And those are kind of ways, if you like, of saying something really acceptable, but also acknowledging the limits of their agency. Actually, if their child is happy, that'll be a huge success, and college is the limits of what they can imagine. So where I see parents devoting their attention and their ingenuity uh, is to try to kind of reconfigure the home in a way that can do that preparatory work for their child. And I think... Um, I think the ways in which they're trying to reconfigure the home, which might be completely misguided, I mean, we don't know, but are themselves interesting. So in the work that um, Julian and I just did in for the class, we kind of mapped some of the ways, um, and this was with for families with 13, 14-year-old children, we were mapping some of the ways in which parents would try to kind of reconfigure the home to make sure that it had a workspace or that it had a space where the child could kind of um, learn to develop the skills that they would need to develop um, for um, getting to college and for uh, a future um, future competitiveness in that in that world of work. Um, in parenting for digital future we can see also parents investing um, or thinking about certain kinds of lifestyles like um, I remember very vividly one father talked about um, okay if you need if, you, if your child needs to be adaptable and flexible for a future precarious and competitive workplace then we need to develop in the home these skills that enable them to be flexible and adaptable so that means if you like dissecting 
traditional family routines and instead having um, thinking about family life as a continual negotiation in which everyone has to kind of argue their case and defend their interest and um, maximize the uh, resources that the home can provide. So they're kind of using the home to create that flexible, adaptable um, individual. I think another way is that parents are, um, so they buy all this digital stuff for their kids, they want, everyone says, you know, the, the one refrain that is common across class, ethnicity, everything is we're buying these tablets and laptops and so on so that our child can not fall behind and perhaps get ahead in that digital future. And then they have a kind of problem that is not unlike what Ben was saying about the kind of opacity of the pathways because then they have a child who sits at home staring at a screen and the parent is faced with the question is this of any value is this bad screen time or good screen time is this developing the skills that will be useful for the future or is it um, a waste of time and distracting them from what would really be a kind of productive investment at this point and I think that opacity of the the value and the quality of screen time is um, giving parents a lot of headache and I would be having this huge argument about the merits of screen time and we haven't really come up with ways that parents find helpful in saying these are constructive activities, these really are teaching the, the coding skills or the um, digital skills that are required and this is just um, pointless. So those questions about what counts, you know, parents are acting within the sphere of their um, perceived power and agency, that's within the home, but it remains kind of disconnected. I suppose the, the last thing I'd just say is that um, we're also working with parents who are choosing to put their kids in coding clubs or in video editing clubs or in some kind of um, clubs and classes and out-of-school activities where they think they will be helping them to take that step towards the last mile. And that's where also I see those, those problems of opacity and just lack of clarity. Is this helpful? And again, you know, the academy and the public policy folk are having these uh, big debates about whether coding works. The OECD just did that big report saying using digital tech in schools is no use at all uh, for getting your child ahead in educational terms. Um, the debates that are being held at that level of public policy, I see in a way, are being mirrored within the home, but then they create just a lot of uncertainty um, about what, what, what it is that they can do. Um, as I said before, I think despite being busy and um, uh, sometimes misguided and often uncertain, parents generally are a constructive resource for their children and they're looking to um, provide support and it's just unclear how they might do that. Thank you. Um, Julian, I know you've been, over the years, and you, these are questions that um, in one way or another that you've been looking at for some time now. And, I know in terms of the network, you've even gone back and revisited, um, you know, transcripts, uh, data, individuals, communities um, uh, that you sort of engaged on these questions uh, many years ago. Um, would you like to share with us um, kind of where you are now in terms of that research and, and how uh, you see it taking form uh, in the context of the kinds of conversations that uh, we, we referenced here today? Um. Yeah, I think my take is slightly different in, in as much as uh, all the speakers so far have quite properly, and I agree with them, um, stressed the kind of difficulty and challenge of the competition that lies ahead. But I've been working with young people, I mean, they're young to me, they're in their 20s uh, and early 30s, so who knows how old they are. I mean, I just told you. Um, uh, but they're not like kids, obviously. And I think what I'm always struck by is um, how people persist in the face of irrational odds and the ways in which if we encourage them to take up an interest in forms of cultural expression, if they're really motivated to make film, if they're really switched on by making music and um, following their interests, which is the absolute axiom axiomatic kind of basis of the whole connective learning thing that you know it's about being interest driven so if people have passions and they care about things 
they do try and find ways to have meaningful lives within the constraints in which they find themselves. So it might not be a very rational, um, logical um, solution to navigating the competitions of modern day life. But if people want to make films, they will find ways to make films. And they'll find ways to kind of subsidize uh, that kind of livelihood in that kind of way. And I think one of the things we are seeing at the moment is um, um, a kind of confidence to, um, uh, for some young people who want to be creative to be creative and who kind of are prepared to take that kind of risk and accommodate. And it's not necessarily a risk that you might expect to be taken only from those young people from comfortable, affluent, middle-class backgrounds. It is surprisingly um, diverse. So, um, uh, and, and it also results in forms of um, activity that are generous and um, collegial and kind of social. So the kinds of uh, young people who are make vi making videos, who are exchanging their labor, who, who swap and share equipment, who are incredibly kind of friendly and sociable and open and generous. I mean, these are all kind of values. These are positive values, for goodness sake, rather than, you know, given that we're kind of also at the same time saying we're living in a world of, of decreasing opportunity and of uh, limited kind of options in that way. I'm, I'm also struck by the ways in which one of the things that we do with these um, out-of-school learning centers and these kinds of programs is we do enable young people to join networks and find other like-minded people. So one of the things that's been crucial for some of the, the interviewees, the, the young people that I've met with, um, is, is how they find other networks of, um, of um, uh, like-minded people and how important that is. And this goes to the, the, one of the heart of the things that I'm constantly puzzled by, which is the amount of kind of work and care that people put into creating kinds of identities for themselves that enable them to live the lives that they want to live in that kind of way. And one of the things that I think is most interesting is how studying young people in these informal learning communities shows that they put as much effort into becoming certain kinds of people, learning certain kinds of ways of working with others, and of participating in this uh, kind of uh, informal economy world, which is, are not the sorts of values um, that are necessarily promulgated in formal education in schools, and not the sort of skills or competences, if indeed those are the right words, um, that, that we kind of measure and accredit and assess. And so that's kind of um, something that I always find quite inspiring when I go and have a conversation with somebody who spent three years you know, making videos with other young people um, in his neighborhood just because that was the kind of right thing to do. Great, um, thank you. Um, so we are, I mean, this, there's so many different angles here that I'm, that I'm fascinated by and why I knew this would be a, a really sort of stimulating uh, conversation, not just, you know, for this particular moment, but just even beyond as we sort of think about these issues and how they uh, matter in the, in, in the work that we do. Um, your insights have been uh, wonderful and, and, and very, uh, you know, kindly shared, so thank you for that. Um, so as we, as we push forward, right, as we um, begin to project, you know, what, um, what future research questions might look like, as we begin to think about, you know, what kinds of interventions or investments, um, you know, we might make or, or particular populations and communities might make in terms of trying to have real world and meaningful, um, you know, impact around these questions, um, around these issues. I'd like to ask each of you to, to respond to this. Are, are there questions that you think researchers should be asking that currently are not really being adequately investigated. Um, in other words, uh, where would you like to see the research go in terms of the kind of inquiry, the kind of critical insight, or interventions uh, that we might help uh, provoke? I can I can throw an idea out there, which is you know following from some of my comments earlier, but. Uh, there, there's quite a bit of ingenuity, I think, being demonstrated in the youth workspace and in, in, in youth development, but I don't think, uh, I, I think it, there's room to, for researchers to really understand, document, and then kind of um, publicize 
what what it looks like to support kind of youth pathways into their future in quality ways. So just to put a fine tune on it, I think our current definitions of what a kind of program quality look like in the positive youth development field tend to be very focused on internal dynamics within the program. And I think if we can expand that horizon outward to the types of brokering and network support that um, I think are necessary, I think that would be a really important step forward um, in a kind of technical in a kind of support role to to that um, youth development field. That's mine. That's one one idea. Um, if I can jump in there, I think what just reflecting on the course of this conversation, I think we began and Craig set it up with us thinking um, not about all young people as a homogenous group, but kind of remembering some of the kind of social justice vision behind the um, connected learning. And I think in our conversation, we've tended to kind of homogenize back young people and their different pathways and perhaps recreate a sense of the uh, individual decisions they might want to make and how to enable those, but forgetting you know, the, again, a point that Julie made very strongly, which is that this is a fantastically inequitous process. And um, the risk that I think we're all worrying about is that if you, uh, if we do research that increases the kind of guidance and supports and designing in new opportunities for young people, um, if those are disproportionately taken up by the already advantaged, then in fact the effect of our work is to uh, exacerbate rather than ameliorate um, inequalities. So I would just kind of urge us perhaps to put back, and I can't say I especially do this always in my work, but if we kind of keep putting back a focus on questions of equity and um, disadvantage and just think, does, does, does the kind of the, the research agenda that we've mapped, the um, kind of practice agenda that we've mapped, does that play differently for people um, given the different starting points they have in life and um, how how can we kind of, I don't want to say ensure that our research doesn't all fall into middle class hands and um, serve to make you know the better off even better off, but um, how can we uh, think about directing our messages um, uh, so that uh, it isn't precisely used to foster further social reproduction. Can I just jump in on that, which I think is a, a great point, um, and it what I, it, it sort of really uh, connects with what I was going to say, which is to go back to uh, where Julian started, and to uh, which is on the sort of either progressive or humanistic kind of you know the the more profound dimensions of education and sort of uh, the whole question of education um, for uh, in that sense versus you know education as an instrument toward vocational success or employment success and um, I think more research on the, sort of you know moving the research agenda away from that instrumental approach to education is really important and it, it really connects with Sonia's point because I think traditionally the idea of that sort of, you know, and we talk about it in the university space as liberal arts and the value of liberal arts has always been for the top part of the labor market, the people who get to be creative in their jobs and so forth. And that, you know, the, the quote farther, quote unquote, down you go in the labor market, the more instrumental, vocational, and less kind of humanistic the educational approach has has been and so I think a really interesting question is the extent is really to try and look at an intersection there and whether or not that more just for want of a better term humanistic approach is valuable among the populations that have traditionally been treated to instrumental learning yeah, no, this is this is interesting, I, and I'll I'll stop here momentarily. But um, I'm I'm struck by the the last two points, and, and Julie, your point, and it makes me think. You know, to what extent, as we see colleges and universities becoming uh, more held more accountable, right, for what happens with their graduates, uh, we just saw the White House essentially try to push forward um, a new kind of mandate that's kind of like a report card, right, that evaluates colleges based on 
not not some of the, the the more kind of subtle and humanistic things that that that, that have been alluded to here and, and that Julian referred to earlier, but rather you know how many of the graduates get jobs immediately afterwards, right? And and so I wonder if this kind of um, this kind of vocational kind of a, a understanding and application of education is actually moved, trickling up, you know, and 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 requiring even institutions of higher learning. Uh, which may have once um, had at least some some distance from that kind of kind of mandate or ideology, increasingly falling prey, falling victim, being compelled, right, to to embrace uh, and in fact demonstrate uh, that they are in fact scoring well on on that metric. And so um, it, it raises a lot of questions about you know how uh, our notions around education, the purpose of education, uh, particularly in, in in a world marked by you know precarity and uncertainty. Um, for me, this is really stimulating and interesting and something to think about further uh, in terms of the kind of discourses that are, uh, for, for lack of a better term, winning out in, in, in the public discourse. Can I just say, add a bit in here, um, which is that uh, I don't necessarily think that it's a question of uh, new research or new questions, but I do think it's... Um, the last mile focus does a good job, um, or we could do a good job, in troubling what I think of as the kind of willful ignorance of all different kind of sections of society which do so well to perpetuate the sort of social reproduction and the denial of opportunity that we've all spoken about. And by that I mean that schools are not encouraged to think beyond what they, you know, when they've done their job, they they don't have an interest uh, in the lives of their community. Employers deliberately, it seems to me, only focus on on a certain kind of definition of kind of entry level kind of competence. Um, parents are, as Sonia has has uh, described, are kind of absolutely left in the cold with both ends of this kind of conversations. And um, politicians. Uh, uh, um, people at university, there's a, a there's a willful belief in people being quite blinkered in only looking to the kind of limits of what they see as their own responsibility and clearly what the last mile does is it shows the ways that by changing the perspective onto the way that the young people themselves navigate through quite a long period, a troubled period in their lives across these different institutions into very difficult set of circumstances that clearly if we could find a way of taking what we know about these lives and these stories back to the different parties, just like Craig was saying in terms of, uh, I, I find the idea of um, just getting colleges to look at kind of you know, employable outputs as a, a little bit of a limited way of kind of this conversation, but we need to find a way to help to get these different kind of sectors to take more responsibility for the longer term and the longer pattern. And then some of these kinds of um, unfairnesses and inequalities and difficulties um, should become much more transparent and possibly uh, uh, um, you know enable us to kind of help find ways to ameliorate and and to help young people overcome what is a very troubling time and the last mile kind of research at its best should help take those kind of difficulties and translate them back to different kind of constituencies and different audiences to help a more enlightened view of the picture. Yeah, no, this is this is important, and um, and and I guess I guess we should at least put out there, right, that that at least part of the pressure that universities are feeling, and we all can identify with this, right, because we are we are, we are each connected to universities in, in different different kinds of ways, um, is that as as the, the the cost for college edu education continues to, to spiral, you know, staggeringly upward. Um, you know, there is a question of you know what what is from a family's perspective, right? Particularly, you know, I think about the, the students that we did research with in the schools that we were in and the families that we met. Um, you know, the idea of taking on that kind of burden in terms of the, the expenses and the debt that you go into, uh, you know, does require uh, you know families to have that conversation, right? You know, is it worth it? Even though most of the data says that yes, it is worth it. Um, but you know, to what extent are colleges being forced to respond to the fact that as as the cost of education continues to spiral upward, you know, how do they um, you know continue to uh, establish their value, their worth, uh, and why that type of investment, even though it can send young people into you know years of debt, uh, is still worth it? And so these are these are really complicated issues, and um, 
and I'm, I'm really struck by the, the kinds of questions that you're each raising uh, and, um, and just your insights uh, I think have been incredibly valuable um, and I know, uh, you know just thinking about moving forward uh, you know, we'll continue to have an opportunity to engage these issues, engage these questions across our various uh, research uh, projects. Um, I think we are getting the signal that our that our time is is, is approaching. Um, as usual, um, time does move really fast um, when you're having fun. So um, this has been a very interesting conversation, a very productive conversation. Um, thank you all uh, for uh, sharing your thoughts, your insights, um, your your own kind of uh, expertise here with us. So this wraps up um, the third uh, webinar in this October 2015 series on doing innovation. Uh, but please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter using the hashtag uh, Connected Learning. Uh, there will also be a full video recording of this webinar available immediately uh, on www.connectedlearning.tv with other curated uh, content, content on the way. If you found this conversation helpful, uh, please share it with all your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV in 2015, uh, please visit our, our website uh, at www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, thanks again, everyone, uh, for sharing your insights. Thank, thank you to the audience for uh, watching. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next Thursday for our final webinar on expanding opportunity uh, in the innovation economy. Thank you. <laughs>